But Matthew chapter 25, uh, like I said, we got the parable of the ten virgins here. Uh, we've got um, the parable of the talents. Uh, we've got this, uh, this, this, uh, this, this scene of judgment uh, with the, the goats and the sheep. And, uh, you know, the, the Matthew 25 there about the least of these. And so wanted to get into all of that. Probably not all tonight. We'll probably split this between tonight and next week. Um, you know, to get through the whole chapter, but that's this lesson and the next lesson, and so that's, that'll work out good for us, I think. Um, let's start here in chapter 25. Let's read, uh, let's read verses 1 through 13. Uh, yeah, 1 through 13. It says, uh, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you two. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to, wedding, to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So, again, you know, as we go through this, it's, it's important to understand when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, what is, what's he talking about? The church. Okay, so the kingdom is the church. The kingdom are those who have uh, submitted to the king, right? We, we are loyal to the king. Our citizenship is, is with the Lord. It's not here on earth. And so the kingdom is the church. And so the church, you're right, the kingdom is like this story. It's, it's, so it, it's not um, the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to, right? And so it's this whole story. And so one of the things that we need to, to kind of get in our heads, uh, especially here in, in this whole chapter, is we are not trying to contrast. You know, we, we, when it, here's what happens. We see this parable and we say, okay, there's two groups. Right? One's foolish and one's wise. So automatically, where does our head go? Who's the wise? Church. Church, right? And who's the foolish? World. Well, that's, that's where our head wants to go. And then it gets real easy because it's like, well, where are we? Obviously, we're the wise because we showed up tonight. You know what I mean? All those foolish people that didn't make it, right? That's who the other group's talking about. And so it gets real easy to divide that line right down the center and say, okay, if you uh, sit in a church building, you're wise. If you're at home playing golf or in a, in, a, in a hunting blind or, you know, whatever else you're doing on a Sunday, you're the foolish. And so we divide that line right down the middle like that. And then what, you know, it's easy to preach that and it's easy to teach that because when you're preaching and teaching that, how relevant is that to the people that showed up? Well, we don't have a problem with it because we're only going to have something bad to say about the people that didn't make it tonight, you know. And I've seen, I've seen a lot of that. I've seen it easy. I mean, it's easy to really pound the pulpit when you're talking about people that aren't here, okay. And so, uh, but again, that's not very relevant, is it? So, so anyway, when we're dealing with this, I want you to understand the kingdom, right? The church is like the story. We are not contrasting 
the church versus the world. The, the, this story is not about five in the church and five in the world. That is not what we're dealing with. This is a parable about the church and this is a parable about preparation in the Christian's life. It's about being ready. It's about finishing what we start. Now, how relevant is that to the church? Yeah, we have problems in the church of not finishing what we begin, right? The church has got so many starters. We've got people that are gung-ho to do anything. We've got people that want to begin things, the people that want to commit to the Lord, people that want to... How about this? Tons of people who want to become a Christian, but so many of them don't want to live the Christian life, right? Two different things, isn't it? I mean, the, the decision to become a Christian and the decision to live the Christian life Man, that's, they're not the same thing. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to become a Christian, but to live the Christian life, how often do you got to make that decision? Man, you got to remake that decision every day, right? Every decision that you make, every, every, every time you want to compromise, every excuse that comes through your head, you've got to run it through this filter. Well, am I going to live the Christian life here? Am I going to put Jesus first in this situation? Am I going to do the right thing for the right reason with the right attitude? Or what, you know, because, because, you know, it's, it's not always easy to do that. And so for the Christian, it's so important that the church learns that it's important to finish what we start, right? And then, you know, well, how do you, how do you practice that? How do you practice finishing what you start? I mean, if we want, I mean, the idea is that you want the Christian to be that, 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 that you know, we start with that seed, that seed sprouts some roots and a, and a plant. The plant's got to get big enough and strong enough that it's going to produce and support fruit one day, right? I mean, that's the idea. We want Christians to grow, to mature, and then, of course, the, the prize, the reward comes from finishing the, the race at the end, right? We have to be faithful until death. And so if I become a Christian and I'm living the Christian life and being faithful, but I give up at some point in my life and never pick the race back up, I forfeit everything. Everything else that I did was worthless because I didn't finish, you see? And, and so it's, it's really, and, 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 and people don't believe that. Right? I mean, even in the church, we struggle with what, it, what it's going to take to get to heaven. Here, here's what happens a lot of times. What happens is we've kind of got this idea. I heard this actually a couple weeks ago. I heard the guy actually say in, in a sermon, you know, it was invitation time. And he actually said, you know what? That first, that first step in the plan of salvation is that first step down the aisle. I'm thinking... Where's that at in the book? You know, I mean, you don't have to have an aisle. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, you can become a Christian without an invitation hymn or a song. It doesn't have to be a decision you make uh, after the sermon is preached. I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been preaching in Glencoe for 15 years now. And I think in 15 years, I've only immersed two people on a Sunday. Okay, and I, that's not a brag or anything. I'm just saying that usually you immerse a person when they're ready to be immersed. And, and that's not typically just on a Sunday morning. That's whenever you're studying with them and they come to the conclusion that there's something that needs to happen in their life. And for me, I'm not usually studying with a person one-on-one -on, -one on a Sunday morning when I'm in the pulpit. I'm doing that at a kitchen table, right? I'm doing that somewhere where we've got a cup of coffee and a Bible out, you know, and you're getting into their lives and they're, they're being convicted by the Word of God and they say, hey, brother, I need to do this. I need to do this right now. Well, let's go. You know, there's not a big crowd there on a Sunday morning. We were just talking about how it doesn't have to be a 
public thing, you know, it's, uh, it's wherever we can find water, let's get these people immersed, you know. And so, so that's the idea. But anyway, we, we get this idea in the church that salvation has to come at the end of the sermon. Uh, you got to come down the aisle. The, the preacher's got to have some, some tearjerker of a, of a sermon illustration and everyone's emotional and, you know, their, their feelings are, are, are running rampant and, you know, and so we can get them to come down the aisle and, you know, we, we always do the repeat after me because that's what, well, that's what Philip did, right? <laughs> right? Re, repeat after me with the eunuch and I always say that if you can't tell me who Jesus is in your own words without repeating it after me, you're probably not ready to do this. And so, but anyway, they'll come down the aisle. We'll repeat after the preacher. And so you make a good confession. We get you in the dunk tank. And, and when you come out, we hand you the baptismal certificate. And then, you know, we never see them again. That person will live a life where they don't ever pray. They don't read a Bible. Uh, they don't show up for the church meetings. You know, we have no idea what's going on in their life because they are gone. But the, one day they'll die. And sure enough, this will happen. Someone will go rummaging through their things, and you know what they're going to find? Oh, I didn't even know he was a Christian. Look what we found here. We got us a baptismal certificate. Notice I used the valley flyer for the bat. There you go, brother. <laughs> a little plug there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but someone will, pull, someone will pull that out and say, look how much they love Jesus. We had no idea, you know, so they're definitely in a better place. Or, or what will happen is they'll die and then someone will rummage through a filing cabinet at the church building and find an old record book and say, oh, we did. who knew? 60 years ago they put their membership in here. They were a member of the church the whole time. Look, I've read the book, guys. No one gets rewarded for that. It's just not there, right? What does it take to get the reward? Faithfulness. You have to be faithful. You have, it's not enough to come to, the, to, to Christ. You have to stay there. And it's your responsibility to stay there. You have to keep yourself in the love of God. That's what Jude tells us, right? And so there's a responsibility there. You have to finish that race. Well, you can't finish it if you're not running it with endurance, you see? I mean, you have to be faithful until death. And so those things are important. So when we look at this, this parable of the ten virgins, understand it's... it's it's extremely relevant to the Christian today because this is a, a, a parable about preparation, about being ready now to make sure that we can do this till the end, right? I'm in this for the long haul. I'm not giving up. I'm not going to stand down. I'm not going to sit this out. I'm going to live the Christian life. I'm going to put that at the forefront of everything that I'm doing. And that's, that's who I am. That's what I'm about. And everything else can work around that or, or be canceled around. But I'm not budging from that. That's the idea. And so that's what we're going to talk about, <laughs> okay? Um, now, here's the thing. The context of the parable, okay, is something that we're somewhat unfamiliar with. The context of the parable, it's, it's not that we're unfamiliar with the wedding, but we are unfamiliar with how a traditional Jewish wedding would have worked, okay, which is different than how, how our weddings today work. And so, they're not, they're not that drastically different, but they're different enough. So, there are three phases of a Jewish wedding, or at least in, in the times of the Bible, Okay, and so uh, the first uh, leg of this is what we call the arrangement. Okay, and so we would consider this similar to, to an engagement, right? When a couple gets engaged, um, but in, in biblical times, this arrangement would have been planned by the fathers, okay, usually. And so 
Um, and so that's important to know. So the, uh, the, the arrangement for the marriage, uh, what we would consider the engagement, that would, be, uh, that would be arranged by the fathers. The second part of this is, the, is being betrothed, okay? And so this is, now I've heard a lot of people say today that being betrothed is like being engaged, and it's, it's not. Um, and and here's, how, here's why, okay? Two, two uh, couples get engaged today, how hard is it to break that off? You could just say, I don't want to do this anymore, and, and it's over. You know, there's nothing, you're, it's no, there's no legal, legally binding commitment there, okay? Um, you know, at the most, you know, you might be out of a ring if things go south at that point. You know what I mean? There's, there's no, there's no, you know, I mean, we're, we're planning to get married, um, but that's, that's about all the engagement really has to be. Being betrothed, this is the portion in the Jewish wedding where the vows were actually made. Now, how important is that? I mean, that's a big deal, okay? That's a huge deal, okay? And so the vows would be made during the betrothal there, and the woman, at that point, she doesn't move in with her, uh, with her soon-to-be husband, okay? Again, that's a lot different than what we have today, too. Um, usually everyone's living together before the wedding. Uh, in the Jewish wedding, absolutely not, wasn't going to happen, right? Shouldn't happen today either, but that's a different thing. Um, so when you're betrothed, the woman would continue to live at home with her parents. Now... The purpose of the betroth- being betrothed there is that, you know, you're, you're legally binding, right? And so you're, you're, you're uh, it's like you're married in a legal sense. The commitment's there. The vows are made. The, the, the bridegroom is going to go off and prepare a place for your family. That's the idea. So he's going to get the, the house set up, the farm set up, whatever he needs to do to where he can bring his, his bride home and they can begin their family and their, 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 their livelihood or, or those sorts of things. And so, but that happens at the marriage feast. And so once they're betrothed, usually the groom will head out and get those things ready and then he's going to return for his bride. Okay, is this we sound familiar? Okay, what part of this process do you think we're in right now as a Christian? Number two, right? We are betrothed to Christ, right? Which is, were vows exchanged? Yeah, we made a vow when we became a Christian that Jesus was the Lord uh, of our life, that we were going to submit to Him. Those, you know, so those vows were made. Those vows were supposed to mean something, right? Um, has He left to prepare a place? Yeah, you better believe he has. Is he going to come back for his bride? That's right. Okay. And so um, when he comes back, we're going to be at stage three of this, the marriage feast. Okay. So this would customarily occur about a year after the betrothal. Is that right? Boy, I've been struggling with that word tonight. I've been trying not to say it. (laughs) Um, But the bridegroom would arrive. Now, this is important at an unexpected time. So usually everyone kind of knew about when it was going to, but, but, but not exactly when it was going to come. And so everyone is supposed to be ready, and he's just going to show up, okay? And so he's going to show up at an unexpected time for his bride. Now, <clears throat> uh, you can see how this fits in with, with, uh, with where we're at right now, right? I mean, Jesus is going to come back. We know he's coming back. We know when he's coming back. No, right? And so a lot of people claim to know. Um, they've all been wrong. They're still going to be wrong. Okay, we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. Uh, but he's going to show up. And so the idea is that he's not going to give us a call first. 
right? I mean, he's not going to let us know, hey, by the way, I'm going to show up tomorrow. Everyone get ready. The idea is that we are supposed to live our lives in a state of readiness, right? Where we are expecting and living like Jesus could actually come back this very night, okay? And, and I truly believe one of the biggest differences between the first century church and us today is that they actually lived that way. Like Jesus could be back right now, right? And you can see that, you know, when they're giving to one another as each would have need and they're sharing their possessions with one another. They're, they're bringing that, you know, why? Because the, none of this matters. Jesus is going to come back. Right? And so this is all temporary. They really believed like this was all temporary. Like, like, like Jesus is going to be back at any moment. And that's, that's, that's what we're going to focus on. Now, I believe we sh- should still be living that way. This is all temporary. Jesus is going to be coming back at any moment. And even if he doesn't, this is all still temporary. Right? And so we've got to get our focus where it should be. Now, but our parable tonight, though, takes place uh, during the marriage feast. Okay? And so we've got 10 virgins, which would have been the wedding party. Okay, so this was the typical Jewish wedding party. So the 10 virgins make up that wedding party. And the job of the wedding party is to wait for the arrival of the bridegroom. Okay, and so he's going to show himself up. Now, uh, of course, who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. Uh, Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom there. Matthew 9 15 you're there say got it you're all quick Jesus said to them the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them can they but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast and so Jesus is the bridegroom identifies himself as such and uh, and and then the ten virgins they they would hold these ten lamps that would be used in the bridal procession and so I bring all this up because, again, we're not real familiar with the Jewish context and the, the historical wedding procession and how those things work. But the, the crowd that Jesus is speaking to, they knew this, right? This was a big part of their life, and so um, they understood every part of this. Um, okay, in this parable, okay, we have ten virgins, and they're comprised of two groups. What's the first group? Wise. The wise. What's the next group? Foolish. Foolish. Okay. The parable is emphasizing the foolish, right? I mean, the, we get a lot more information about the foolish, that the foolish take up the, the majority of the story. So, you know, the point is that Jesus is expecting us to learn from the mistakes of the foolish, right? We don't want to be that crowd. We want to learn from their mistakes. We want to make sure that uh, that doesn't become who we are. Now, what, they're, what are they doing? In the beginning, the, the Bible tells us that they're all waiting for the bridegroom, okay? And so that's, that's significant. They're waiting for the bridegroom. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what we all should be doing. The problem is they weren't prepared to wait very long, okay? And so they, 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 they don't have what it takes in them to, to finish this out. That's the issue, okay? And so before we get real far into this, like I said, um, one thing that could come up here, if you're going to teach this, or, or maybe as we're teaching it right now, we've got to be careful not to dig into some of these parables, into, into, into things that aren't there. Okay? Jesus is teaching this parable. This parable is a story. It's supposed to help us understand something. One of the things that could catch us up is that we know that often the church is considered the, the, the bride of Christ. Okay? 
And so I, I've, 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 I've had people kind of spin their wheels. Hey, wait a minute. How is the church the bride? But here we're also the bridal procession and the ten virgins. And so, you know, um, if, if the church is the bride in this, in this parable, then who's the, who's the bridal procession? Like who would be the ten? It doesn't make any sense. So anyway, my, my point is don't, don't get hung up on that. If, if that causes conflict, just remember that Jesus isn't trying to build on anything here. I know we did that in the last couple parables where we talked about the birds and we talked about the soil and we kind of used one thing, on, but all that was in the same context, right? Same chapter, same dialogue, same conversation, same crowd of people. And so we're, we, can, we can take all of that together and build, a build from that. But this is, this is a different conversation, different dialogue, different crowd, you know, different day. And so Jesus is not trying to teach multiple aspects of this. He's trying to, to teach this parable to help us understand the kingdom. And in this parable, the kingdom is not compared to a bride. It's compared to a bride, bridal party that's waiting for the bridegroom to return. Okay? And so is, is everyone clear on that? Does that confuse anybody? Okay, well, you all are top-notch then because we had issues in that in a few other places. <laughs> all right, 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's look what the Bible says here. Uh, verses 11 through 12. 2 Peter chapter 3, 11 through 12. If you're there, say got it. All right. <clears throat> um, the Bible says... <clears throat> Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Okay. Um, a couple things about, number one, what things are going to be destroyed? Sorry? Everything, everything, okay? Well, what, what was that, you know, what are some things that might, might encompass everything? The atmosphere. Okay. Space. Space, the atmosphere. Huh? Elements. The elements. Everything we can see and touch. The earth, everything we can see and touch. Okay, what about, uh, what about our possessions? What about our, our jobs? What about our homes? What about our cars? Right, I mean, we're talking, huh? I put out our music equipment. Okay. <laughs> pets. Your pets. That's, boy, your touchy subject there. Yeah, there's JR's wanting everyone to start crying now. His whole platform is your pets are going to hell. Is that what? <laughs> um, here's the thing. If all of these things... And again, these aren't just things. These are your things. Think of it. These are your things. These, your possessions. These are it's your job. It's, it's your earthly connections. It's, it's all the things that are a part of your life here on earth. If, if, if when Jesus returns, he's not salvaging any of that. None, none of that gets preserved. right? None of that is getting saved. It's all being thrown in the burn pile. So how much value do you think Jesus puts on those things? You think we put more value on it than he does? You better believe we do, right? And so there's a perspective there that probably we ought to start changing and altering. And that's hard because we live in a, we haven't been to heaven yet. You know what I mean? This, this is what we have. This is what's right in front of us. And the world puts zero 
priority on, on, on the things that we are supposed to put our importance on. They put it all on those things that gets thrown in the burn pile, right? And so it's easy to, to get our perspective and, and to get our priority uh, shifted in those things. But like I said, all those things will be destroyed in that way. And so the question is, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? It's a good question. What sort of people should we be? Faithful, Faithful people, for sure. Yeah. You know, righteous people. Uh, what kind of conduct? Right? What kind of God? You know, we, we should be. You know, you go back into uh, this, this. This parallels what happened with Noah, right? Noah, in, in Noah's day, you know, uh, the whole world was corrupt and wicked. But, but why was Noah saved? Sorry, what? Blameless and righteous in his time, right? Man, so that's you know, we need to be blameless and righteous in our time too, and that's a struggle because. Boy, our time's a rough time, you know, but it wasn't any worse than what Noah's time was. Could Noah do it? Apparently he could. Yeah, he did do it. Now that's significant because, you know, again, I, you know, one of the things, you know, so we hold a Bible study at the Senior Citizen Center there in Warsaw. I think I've mentioned this before. They love to talk about how horrible our world is. I mean, they really like to get down on our culture. And, and I'm, I'm right there with them, so, you know, it's, it's fun. Uh, but, you know, uh, but a lot of them have got the attitude, and you've heard this too, that Jesus has got to be coming soon. Like as bad as things are going on right now, Jesus got to be just showing up tomorrow, you know. And, and he could, he absolutely could. But I'm telling you, uh, as bad as the world is, it's been worse. It's not worse right now than it ever has been before, right? I mean, in the days of Noah, I've, it's never been that bad. I mean, every inclination of the human heart, mankind was evil continually all the time. And in the middle of that, now, you know, how many people were there? You know, I think some people think, well, it was no one like 12 people on earth he had to contend with. You know, most, most uh, educated, uh, Jake's like, I've never thought about that. <laughs> uh, most people say there's about 4 million people, I think, is the number that, that gets thrown around quite a bit. Either way, it's more than like a dozen. Okay, and so you've got a large population of people that are living in a pretty bad situation, and you've got one guy who stands alone among that crowd that is righteous and blameless in his time. That's, that's tough. How'd he do it? And if he could do it, what's our excuse? Well, it's hard. That's just the way we are. Our culture, our society. What was his excuse? And he did it. Right? And that's something to think about. What kind of people ought we to be in, uh, in conduct and godliness? For sure. You know, uh, I think, I look back at Noah, that gives me hope. I mean, if he could do it, and, and, and here's the thing, what do we have that he didn't have? How about the indwelling of God in our lives? We have the, the Holy Spirit in our lives right now to empower us, to, to strengthen the inner man so that we can, uh, you know, the, the, to give us that, that spiritual endurance that we need. And I mean, we've, we've got... We've been strengthened from, from God Almighty on all high. I mean, we've been strengthened in the inner person. Why do we need the strength there? Spiritual battle, right? Let's, let's take a look at that. Let's go turn over to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians chapter 3. We've got a whole, a whole Holy Spirit study we'll do God willing, and you all still want me to come do it, we'll, that we'll get into soon. But um, look what the Bible says here. Verse 16, chapter 3, Ephesians. 
that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit where? In the inner man. So what kind of strength are we talking about? What kind of strength did Samson have? Physical strength. Everyone, everyone, you ever seen the cartoon drawings, Sunday school pictures and stuff? You know, Samson always looks like his big bodybuilder, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, out there fighting off, uh, you know, the Philistine army. I, I bet he didn't look like that at all. Okay, I bet he looked like Mike. <laughs> Uh, you know, I bet he looked like he weighed about 100 pounds. Uh, a good breeze would have blown him over. But because the point was, he was not a strong man until the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You know what I mean? That's, that's what made him strong. But his strength was physical. Why do you think God would do that to, to Samson? Have it written down. The Bible says for our example. What are we supposed to learn from that? All that well, how about this? All that strength that he had physically... Do we have access to it on the inside? Yeah. I mean, we're strengthened. It says, you know, here that we're strengthened with power through his spirit. Well, how much power is that? Same power that gave Samson strength. He could fight off the entire army with the jawbone of a donkey. You know, that same strength, it's not physical, but it's in here. Right? He says that that is, is, is in us through his spirit in the inner man. Okay, jump down to verse 20. Now to him who's able to do, we've heard this, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works where? Within us. What's all that power for? It's a good question. What is all that power for? We, we, we go into chapter 6 here in Ephesians and we start reading about this, this armor that, that the Christian's been given. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. How, how mighty is God? And we, we have access to that? Inward? Spiritual strength? And then talking about all this armor, we got helmets and we've got a shield and we've got a sword. And What do we need all that armor for? You need that to go to Sunday school class? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> You need that armor to come here tonight? Yeah, we, we need it to, to live the Christian life. We need it because we're going to have to make hard decisions in our lives. Right? We're, we need it because we're up against a lot you know, that, that's battling over our mind and the decisions that we're making and the priorities that we have and what we're going to do and where we're going to stand and are we going to be like everybody else or are we going to be more like Christ? And I mean, We're up against a lot, but it's all that battle's raging up here, man. And so we need inward strength to make good decisions, to make biblical, scriptural, spiritual decisions. The, the fight's not in the flesh, it's in the spirit. But we don't need that armor to come to a church meeting on Sunday. We don't need that armor to go to Sunday school. We don't need that armor to go to a carry-in dinner. We need that armor. We need that spiritual strength in the inward man because we've got to be faithful until death and we've got a job to do and there's work to be done and then there's a whole lot more to this than just sitting around and waiting for Jesus to show up. And so this whole world's going to go down. What sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? The idea is, in this parable, they're waiting for Jesus to come back, right? We're waiting for the bridegroom to come. When I say that this isn't about the world and the church, this is, this is relevant to the church. Here's the thing. All ten virgins are waiting for the bridegroom, right? The wise and the foolish are both waiting for the bridegroom. Is the world waiting for Jesus to come back? 
They don't care. It's not on their radar. They don't lose sleep over it. They Not one day in their lives are they thinking, oh no, what if Jesus comes back right now and I'm not ready? It's not on their radar, guys. Christians are supposed to be waiting for Jesus to come back. We should be living with the fact He could be back today. I need to be prepared. I need to be ready. There's work to be done. right? And so the ten virgins are not representative of, well, the wiser Christians and the foolish are not. It, it, because the world doesn't fit the, the picture. They all represent people in the kingdom. And, and so, but hear this, Jesus does not say five are righteous and five are unrighteous. He doesn't say that five are sinners and five are not. He doesn't say that five are real Christians and five are imposters. He does say that five are wise and five are foolish. And so their condition on whether you are wise or foolish okay, has a lot to do with, with the end outcome for sure. But it's the basis of that condition is on whether you're prepared for this or not. Right? It, it, it's not about whether you became a Christian. It's about what are you doing with your Christian life? What are you doing? With, are you ready? Is the idea. And so let's, let's look here in verse 3 through 4. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. And so the foolish were more concerned with waiting than preparing. Do you see that? The, the, the foolish, you know, understand the church, the church is waiting for the return of Christ, but we are called to do more than just sit and wait, right? It's what are we supposed to be doing with the time that we have right now? We better be preparing. We better be doing more than just preparing too. I, I, I believe we have out-prepared our obedience, okay? We are more prepared than we have actually engaged in the work. But, you know, the church is not a waiting room, right? With, with this, the, the idea is not I become a Christian and I just sit. I mean, what do you do in a waiting room? You just wait for the doctor to call you in. And, and a lot of people think that's what Christianity is. I became a Christian, and so I'll, I'll keep doing the thing where I come to the meetings and I'll sing the songs and I'll take the Lord's Supper until Jesus calls me home or until He shows up, right? Until the doctor says, it's your turn to come into the office, right? We get this idea that the church is just this waiting room. The problem with the, with the waiting room is that we don't do anything in a waiting room but wait. And so there's a lot of work to be done. We have to be diligent to do all that we can with the time that we have and the mentality of most people I mean really most people what is Christianity about it's about sitting in a church building for an hour on Sunday morning I mean if you really get down to it that's what constitutes Christianity for most people what makes you a Christian I go to church what does that mean well I show up on Sundays if I don't have anything better to do Right? And so, for a lot of people, now listen, if, if we're going to be effective for the Lord, if we want to be the Lord's church, if your congregation is going to be effective for the Lord, this has to be about a whole lot more than just I came to church this week. Like your Christian life, your faith, who you are because of Christ ought to be a whole lot more than why I showed up and sat in the church building this week. We talked about this a lot. What constitutes success in most of our congregations? The numbers game, man. Yep, got to get the score up. And so we think, again, we can get the most amount of people to come in and sit down for an hour. We've really accomplished something. We fill in pews or we fill in heaven? Right? 
Are, are people converting? Are they repenting? Or are we just trying to get them into the baptism? I mean, are we? And here's here's what I, I really worry. I really worry that a lot of a lot of what we've done is we have we've converted people to baptism instead of converted people to Christ. Right? What we've sold them on is you need to be baptized, not you need to live the Christian life. You need to be following Jesus Christ. Now, what does that include? Baptism is absolutely 100% a part of that. Don't, don't ever think for a second that, that it's absolutely essential. No one's going to heaven without it. Uh, but just because you were baptized does not guarantee you're going to heaven. Faithful until death. You need to be in Christ, but you have to remain in Christ. You see, you have to be maturing and growing and producing fruit. And it really worries me and concerns me because I think, I think we, we've, we've done some mistakes in the past. I, I think we have pushed baptism instead of pushed Christ on people. I think we've converted people uh, to, to, to be followers of our baptism doctrine rather than followers of just the Bible and, and what the Bible teaches. Uh, I think the process has to be make a follower of Christ. Right? That's the Great Commission. Go into the world. Right? And we make disciples of all the nations, baptizing who? Them. Them. People who know what it means to be a disciple, who are ready to be followers of Christ. They're the candidates for baptism. And so, what, you know, what hinders me from, from being baptized? That was a good question, right? Eunuch asked that. The answer isn't nothing. If you're not willing to repent, that hinders you from being immersed into Christ. Now, you can get wet. But if you're not willing to repent, it's not baptism. It's not biblical, scriptural baptism, right? If you don't have biblical faith in the working of God at your baptism, it's, you're just getting wet. It's not biblical, scriptural baptism, right? So there's, there's more to it than just we've got to convince people to come down the aisle and take the plunge. We need to convince people that Jesus is worth it and that you need to follow him. And here's how you get into Christ. And then you need to keep walking in that newness of life. And so those are things we need to think about today. So Christianity is not just a waiting room, right? You become a Christian, that's the beginning of something. So <clears throat> here's a, well, we'll come back to this. Let's take a break. Uh, but the question we're going to be asking when we come back is, is, what is our assembly for? What is our church meetings? What is the purpose of that? When we come together on a Sunday morning, uh, what's the goal? What are we trying to accomplish? What, why, did, why did the Lord set this up this way? That's something we want to talk about. So, all right, we'll take a few minutes. All right, so let's talk about it. What, what is our assembly for? That's, that's, that's the question. When we come together on Sunday morning, what's the purpose? What are we trying to accomplish? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Lord's Supper. That's that's a big part of it. Yeah. Who's that for? Oh, because Jr. said Christians. You excluding all the lost people then on Sunday morning, right? <laughs> Won't do them no good. All right. No, I'm, I agree with you. Yeah. Lord's Supper is a, a big big part of what we do on a Sunday morning, uh, and and that is that's for Christians. Okay. What's the what do we gain from that? Is it just about taking that off the box and making sure we you know, I mean, is it just about ingesting some juice and a cracker? And okay, well, let's, 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 let's focus on the Lord's Supper for just a sec. What's the purpose? What do we get out of that? I mean, okay, there's some examination supposed to happen. I'm sorry. Oh, you have to do it together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, church, your church is supposed to come together for that. Yeah, being one. 
Is there any spiritual benefit there? Okay, a proclamation and, and remembering the Lord's death, proclaiming that till He comes back. So there's a pro proclamation that He's coming back. So all these things, who's that benefit? It's pleasing to the Lord. It's pleasing to the Lord, yeah. But, but we're the ones that, that gain from that, right? We get better because of that. You know, th those are things that... That's, that's, that keeps us, our mentality in check, you know, it helps us keep in mind what's important and what's not important. So, you know, but that's, and what does the world gain out of that? Nothing to benefit the loss there, okay? That's, we can set an example for sure, yeah, and that's, that is an example we need to, to set. Um, okay, well, what else happens there on a Sunday morning? Well, the, there's, there's usually some singing involved when we come together. Who's, uh, what's that for? Okay, to praise in the Lord. Okay, has uh, the world world got a lot to praise the Lord for? You see the you see the irony though in someone coming and and lifting up praises to the Lord. They ain't even been a bit been a bit obedient to the Lord. You know, I mean that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Um, you know the, the 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 doctrine that's being proclaimed on a Sunday morning in the Lord during a, during the Lord's assembly. There, who are we targeting with what's being preached? Okay. It ought to be the church, right? Because what is that instruction for? Encouraging and equipping the saints for good work, right? We're to, we're to preach the, the word and we're to... Uh, yeah, so I mean, so the, the Lord's assembly is there for the church, right? That's the goal. Is we are, or we're trying to target the church with the Lord's assembly on a Sunday morning. And so, that being said, <clears throat> we come together... It's, it's, we call it, you ever heard people talk about the service on Sunday? I really, I really don't like that phrasing. Um, I don't know that it's wrong phrasing, but I have, but here's my problem with it is we act like that's, that's the service that we do, right? I mean, how many Christians are doing any more service in their life than just showing up on a Sunday morning? That's where most people are. I mean, they, that's my Christian service. I came, I mean, I had to sit through that sermon, <laughs> I sang the songs, I put some money in the plate, I took the Lord's Supper, I did my service for the week, right? We won't have any more Christian service in my life until next Sunday when I'll do it again. How much work are we doing? Is that hard to do on a Sunday morning? It depends on the preacher. Depends on the preacher. <laughs> yeah. You've been going to that place where you, got, you need the armor and the helmet and... <laughs> Yeah, but see, you know, is, is it, we come together on a Sunday morning. That's not really the service room. It's a break room. And that, that's what I want you to think of. You know, we come together on Sunday. That's where the Christians can take a break for a second. You know, I, I try to stress this in, in, at Glencoe too. You know, we, we, when we come in on a Wednesday night or we come in on a Sunday morning, we're not working. You know, I mean, that's not what we're doing. We're getting motivated. We're getting encouraged. We're getting built up. We're, why? Because if we're living the Christian life, the tank ought to be running low. And we need to come together to be equipped and encouraged and motivated and fueled up so we can get back out there and do the work. However, if we're not doing any work when we walk out the door, tank's probably not low by next Sunday. Right? Wait, wait, yeah, that's, we can skip one in there, you know? Um, yeah, so, you know, we come together for, like I said, for that encouragement to be built up, to be challenged, to be strengthened, so we, we can fill the tank so we can get back out there and serve. And so, you know, we take what we get when we come together, and we can bring that back out into the world. 
That, that's the idea. So, you know, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, he gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, some as pastor, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So the equipping that happens, you know, what, what are we equipping saints to do? We need to equip saints to come to Sunday school? I mean, is, you get what I'm saying? Like, what are we trying, you know, if we're equipping saints for service, we need to identify what the service is. And if the service is what happens on Sunday morning, how much equipment do we, how much equipping do we need to do that? Again, we don't need that, that, we don't need that armor of God to show up on a Sunday morning. Okay, we don't need strengthened with, with, the, with all his might and in the inner man to show up and sit through a Sunday school class. All right, so if, 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 if instead we start thinking, well, our, our assembly is where we're being equipped, then, the, then you know, the only logical progression of that thought process is then the work, the service, doesn't happen here. It has to happen out there. And so we don't come here to serve. We come here to get equipped so that we can go out there and serve. Okay, now, the, the problem with those things is that most churches today have, have reversed all of this around. We don't expect the church to serve. We just want them to show up and then we, we are expecting the, the church service to be the only service that happens. And I know that because most congregations, the, they're, they're, there's no soul winning that happens. We just hope to accomplish that through a good sermon on Sunday morning. We've turned the assembly into the evangelistic tool. And we've taken that burden of being evangelistic off of your shoulders and put it on the service and the experience that's going to happen for an hour on Sunday morning. Now, we've seen that happening, right? I mean, we see that that's... That now, I'm not saying that it's not a good idea to use the opportunities you have. People can come in the building. Visitors can show up. They need to hear the gospel proclaimed every time. Absolutely. But we need to stop thinking that that's where the service needs to be. The service has to happen in your life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sundays where we come to get filled up, encouraged, built up, equipped so that we can get out there and be more effective next week than we were last week, right? That's the idea. And so the problem is, you know, the assembly isn't the work of service. It's the training. It's the preparation. And, and most people have it the other way around. There's a lot about our mentality here that I want us to think about, but let's look at some scriptures. Let's turn to these here. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, 15, Matthew 28, 19, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We'll hit all of these here. Um, you know, and we'll, we'll give you all time to turn there. Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. You got it? Okay. It says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Does that verse, does that portray the Christian as sitting idly, waiting for Jesus to come back? No, it sounds like we got, we got work to do, right? It sounds like we're busy, right? We're, we're pursuing something. We're, we're engaged in this race. We're running with endurance. We're, there's movement in the Christian life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. If you're there, say, got it. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Does that portray the church? Just sit and wait till Jesus comes back? No, you're a Christian. There's work to be done, 
right? You, you're not going to work for your salvation, but because of our salvation, there's, there is much work to be done. And so let's make the most of the time we have. That's, that's the opposite of treating it like, like a waiting room, right? The church isn't the waiting room. There's, there's, there's service to be done. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We have marching orders, right? We, we have a, a, a mission that we need to be engaged with. And so here's the thing. Oh, there's another one. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's a lot different than I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back one day, right? While we're here, we have a job to do. While we're here, we need to be engaged in His work. While we're here, we need to get busy. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big deal. What we need to do is, is you know, the, I think the reason our churches are suffering, uh, you know, I, I've said this for a long time, it's no wonder we can't get the world excited about the gospel. We can't even get the church excited about the gospel. Okay, and that's a problem. You know, we, we gotta, we're out here begging. I mean, my job, like I said, I've been someone's preacher for somewhere around 20 years now, which I know some of you have got a lot more years on me than that. But for 20 years, I feel like most of what I've done is just try to guilt people in to doing the right thing and guilt guilt Christians into showing up and 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 participating and you know and, and it's like come on and like why can't we get excited about this and then we get upset because we say well no one really wants to hear it you don't want to hear it sometimes right I mean you're not showing up and you're 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 gonna get mad because your neighbor won't show up you know show up get excited about it you won't get anyone else excited about it if you're not excited about it and if you don't think this is important no one else is gonna think this is important and so you have to, you know, when we look at, at why churches are on the decline, we look at why in our own congregations we're struggling to get our own people to show up for the meetings, yet alone make, make any impact in the world around us. It might be because we don't understand what in the world we're doing here. We're showing up because we've got work to do, and when we're here, we can be equipped and encouraged and, and, and edified and built up for that work. If you aren't interested in doing the work, why would you show up? Right? I mean, if, if I had no intention of ever sitting down with someone and opening the Bible and having a Bible study with them, you know what would be the hardest thing in the world for me to do every week? <laughs> Come in here and sit through a Bible study. I'm like, my goodness, why would I waste my time? I've got better things to do. I mean, if I had no intention of sharing the gospel, I, wouldn't, I would not come and sit through a Bible study every week. Right? If I had no intention of living the Christian life, I wouldn't need to be edified and encouraged by one another. Right? Encouraged for what? I ain't doing anything. You know? I don't need built up. I'm not, I have no plan. I'm just going to sit here and wait until Jesus comes back. You know? And, and, uh, but you see, I mean, if you look at most churches and the, the lack of excitement and the lack of involvement, you have to assume it's because nobody has any plans of doing anything. I mean, would you show up for training for a job that you never intended to do? Well, that's what's going on in our churches. This is training time right now. This is preparation time right now. Why would I show up if I have no intention of doing anything? You see? And so we need to, we need to live the kind of life where I need to be in the assembly. I don't want to miss our assembly. I don't want to miss a Sunday morning. I don't want to miss a midweek Bible study with the, with the saints at Glencoe. I don't want to miss that because I need that. 
I need that encouragement. I, I need to be built up. I need to be in the Word of God with one another where there's some accountability, where we can kind of keep one of them. I, I mean, you've got to live a life where you understand how necessary that is. And if you're not, it's, you're going to always find something else to do with your time. You're always going to be able to find some excuse of why you can't make it, why it's not important, right? And then time goes by and nobody's finding it important. You, you all know how it is. I can, uh, I, 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 I very plainly remember this. You all may not think it's a big deal, but I remember, I, th- I thought it was really cool. Callan, the kid that came tonight, <laughs> he, uh, he, uh, he was like three or something, comes up to me just real matter-of-factly. He's always got these big ideas, and he's like, I'm going to be a dinosaur one day, Daddy. And I was like, couldn't be prouder, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know... <laughs> I mean, if you're going to set your goal somewhere, dinosaur's a pretty good one, I guess. Uh, doctor, lawyer, no, no, no. Race car driver, uh-uh. Going to be a doctor. My other son, when he graduated preschool, they brought him across the, you know, the, the stage, and they, every, every kid was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, they're in their cap and gown and all that kind of stuff, and every kid's like, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be an astronaut, and Mike, Mike Cohen came over and said, I'm going to be a spy. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, so, but anyway, but dinosaur. Callan picked a dinosaur. And, uh, and no joke, like he just, I'm going to be a dinosaur daddy. I'm like, that's great, buddy. I'll, I'll support you, you know, <laughs> whatever I can do to help. He walks away like 15 minutes later. He comes walking back in real seriously. He's like, can I even be a dinosaur? You know, and like you could tell, like all he'd done for 15 minutes is sit in his room trying to figure out how is this going to work. And... I say that, though, because I think the church hasn't got to that step in this. You know what I mean? It's like we, we want to be a successful church. Every Christian I've ever talked to wants to be a successful Christian. Every church I've ever been around, they want their church to grow. Everybody wants to know their Bible better. Uh, I, I mean, most men that show up for the church service, oh, I'd love to be able to teach one day. I'd love to be able to get in the pulpit and preach sometime. Like, we've got, we've got goals that are no different for a lot of us, then I want to be a dinosaur. Okay, it sounds great. Maybe it sounds fun, but we've we've not hit the next step where we've actually put the thought into. I haven't really thought what's it going to take to be successful. What am I actually going to have to do to be able to get in that pulpit and preach a sermon one day? Well, I, I want the church to grow, but I guess I've never actually thought what is it going to take. What do I? What am I going to have to do to actually help this congregation grow? We. That's the step we've not gotten to yet. We're like the three-year-old that wants to be the dinosaur and hasn't thought it through. You know, what goals do we have as Christians? Have we actually put two and two together here and figured out, you know, I want to memorize some more Scripture. Okay, you have to start memorizing Scripture then. Like, that's never going to happen if you don't start doing that. I want to teach one day. You're going to have to put a lesson together. You'll never get up and teach until you get a lesson put together. You know, I want to talk to my neighbor about Jesus. You're going to have to go over there and start talking to your neighbor about Jesus. Your neighbor is not going to come and start talking to you about it. You know what I mean? Like, you've got to start thinking this through. How are we going to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish? And so, too many in the church, there's no vision, there's no goal, we're not working toward anything, and that's why, well, so many are just barely showing up, and they just kind of put in their time. It's not going to work. Um, <clears throat> does anyone remember Alice in Wonderland? The book, anyone ever read the book? Like one hand went up, two, 
three. See, now you're all, were you embarrassed of it or something? It's a good book. Anyway, there's a point where Alice says to the cat, she says, would you tell me which way I got to go from here? And the cat says, that depends a good deal on which way you want to go. And then Alice says, well, I don't really care where. And so the cat says, then it really doesn't matter which way you go. And that's where most Christians are. It's like, where are we supposed to go? Where do you want to go? I don't care. Well, then it doesn't matter what you do. You know, and so it's no wonder that we're not more invested in this. It's no wonder that our assembly isn't anything more than what it is. And so, you know, the idea is, is simple. There's no need to prepare if you're not planning on doing anything. Okay? And so if we're struggling with our church attendance, with our Bible study attendance, you know, two, two things on that. I always tell the, the guys going through Bible college, I'm like, you need to give them a reason to be there. Okay? So anybody have a Sunday morning and a Sunday, you preachers out there meeting on Sunday morning and Sunday night? Which one's got the bigger crowd? You know. Huh? Okay, so here's my, seriously, here's my advice. You're not going to want to do it. You're going to have two sermons ready for Sunday. One of them will be better than the other, okay? Because they always are. I mean, no two things are equal. And so you're going to look at two sermons and you're going to decide one of these sermons is a better sermon than the other. And then which one are you going to preach Sunday morning? Okay, you, you need to pick the best one for Sunday night. Okay, and if you don't, then you're playing into the thing that Sunday night's not as important as Sunday morning. Right, and you're giving people more of a reason to not show up. Make it important. Okay, make it important. And so anyway, um, like I said, if you don't intend on taking the gospel to the lost, you don't need to be able to rightly divide the truth. If you are not planning on maturing in Christ and, and, and producing fruit, then you don't need a deeper faith. You don't need help to, to take every captive or take captive every thought uh, to the obedience of Christ. If you're not planning on engaging in the spiritual conflict that's at hand, you don't need to sharpen that two-edged sword of God's Word in your life. You see what I mean? So if we're not planning on doing anything, um, then uh, you, don't, you know, no need to prepare. Okay, and so it's no surprise that Jesus would portray the church in this parable. Half of them are prepared for something. Half of them are completely aimless. They're not prepared. They're not concerned. They just showed up to wait. And that's the other thing. You have to be pretty blind and pretty distracted to realize that you are not ready, that your oil is quickly depleting. Okay, let's move on. Matthew 25, 8-9. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. So what we're going to do, we're going to lay this out. Um, you know, it makes a good sermon or Bible study. The first mistake the foolish made was what? They, they didn't prepare for the long haul. They showed up. They were content to wait, but they weren't prepared. Right? They weren't prepared. The second mistake is that they try to borrow it. You see that? So, you know, Jesus is explaining here in verse 5 that the, that the bridegroom is delayed, which is a reminder that we do not know when the Lord will return. Okay? First Thessalonians 5, 2 says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And so we don't know when he's coming. 
Uh, we can't predict when he's coming. It'll be just like in the days of Noah. There's not going to, you know, it wasn't like, well, you know, we've never seen rain before, but I'm going to throw a bunch of thunder clouds and lightning and stuff. And you'll know when it's getting ready to rain. No, it just started to rain one day. So, you know, when you start seeing right now, we just saw something blow up in Israel this week. We got war going on. Does that mean Jesus is coming? No, every time anything happens over there, people think this is, you know, listen, there's, has there ever been a time where there hasn't been wars and rumors of war? It always, it's life, guys, that's life. There's always war somewhere. There's always rumors of war somewhere. So don't think that these are signs telling us, indicating that, that Jesus, we, we don't know when he's coming back. It'll be a day just like any other day, okay? If you're waiting for some evidence to let you know to be ready, you're going to miss this, Okay? We have to live our life where we're just ready. That's the idea. We're always ready for the coming of the Lord. And so we're expected to be prepared. Now, the lamps of the foolish, they are growing dim. What does that mean? Well, they weren't prepared for the delay. They weren't prepared for the long haul. And so what they do is they attempt to borrow their oil from others in order to maintain their light. And so the wise suggest to them, maybe you go to the dealers, you need to get some for yourself. And so... What Jesus is doing is he's trying to stress the importance of personal responsibility in regard to our own faith and our own salvation. Okay, now that's a that's a big deal in our culture and our society because today there is no personal responsibility, right? We have almost completely abandoned that idea from our identities. And so our culture embraces well, they don't embrace personal responsibility for anything. Our culture, their idea is I don't have to be responsible and you cannot hold me accountable for my irresponsibility. Our culture says I'm not going to be responsible, but you're going to be responsible to shoulder my irresponsibility. Okay, that's the world that we live in. And so Jesus is stressing personal responsibility. And like I said, today we've got no fault insurance, no fault divorce We've got kids engaging in sports where everyone gets a trophy just for showing up. No one has to do the work. No one has to be prepared. Our teachers in our schools, they just pass all the kids. You're not allowed to hold them back anymore. You're not allowed to flunk them anymore. You know, uh, we, we are in a situation where nobody feels responsible for anything that they're doing. And so when it comes to your salvation, okay, your preparedness, understand that it is on you. You cannot blame your church. You cannot blame your preacher. You cannot blame your mom and dad. You cannot blame the people in the pew next to you. God has children. He has no grandchildren. You understand that? So nobody, nobody gets in on this just because, well, my mom and dad was real involved with the church. That's good for your mom and dad. That means nothing for you. You understand that? Well, my uncle's been a preacher. I mean, I get this all the time, man. I get people, I'll come into a place, they want to give me the whole family history. Oh, my great-granddad built this place, and, you know, my, my so-so, you know, he stood at the pulpit for 100 years and preached here in this con. You know, man, that's great for them. That means nothing for you. It doesn't. You, you can't ride his coattails into heaven, right? We're not going to all stand in a, in a line and Jesus is just going to look over and say, okay, this is a pretty good group, come on in. And there's going to be personal accountability, right? Personal accountability. And so you have to be prepared to stand before the Lord for yourself. 
and you must be ready at his appearing. Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Nobody can work it out for you. You have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's how we try to borrow it from others. I'm not being fed. Right? My, my spiritual immaturity is everybody else's fault. It's the preacher's fault. He's not, you know, I'm just not being fed. Um, you know, I've talked about that before. That's, that's you know, that, I'm not being fed as something a child could say. They need fed. I'm an adult. I feed myself. I'm not going to starve to death. Okay? Katie, she's a great cook. She makes a lot of good meals for me. But if she never cooked for me again, I still would not starve to death. I can fend for myself. I will feed myself. You're an adult. You're a Christian. Feed yourself. Come here to, to be involved in that Bible study. You know, if you think that the, 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 I mean, if you're all sitting here thinking Jake's Bible studies are pretty lame, we're not getting fed, do some preparation and participate in the Bible study. Seriously. I mean, if it really, if you really think that Jake is dropping the ball in his Bible study, show up prepared to help, right? Ask some questions, right? Uh, make it more interesting. Dig deeper yourself. You know, contribute to it. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. We've talked about this. That is a physical principle, but it's also a spiritual principle. If you're not putting in the work, you're going to come out of here and say, boy, I wasn't fed tonight. Okay, you have to put in the work yourself. How about this? Well, the church is just dead. It's not going anywhere. Can we use that as an excuse? <laughs> yeah, well, that's just the thing. Even if it's true, like it's not helpful, you know, you're a part of the dead church now. So what are you going to do about that? You know, this is the, you all ever had this happen? I, I've had this happen a lot. Uh, you've got a couple, they got some kids and then they decide we're leaving because there's no kids program. You, you seen that? Okay. Who's got kids? They do. Maybe start a kids program, you know, I mean, maybe participate in the kids program, maybe see what you can do to help the kids program. Same idea, right? So, you know, whatever you think your church is lacking, boy, that'd be a great place for you to step up and say, hey, let me help fill this void. Let me help uh, contribute to the things that may be, may be lacking in this place, okay? Um, how about you ever seen a congregation stuck in the past, holding on to someone else's legacy? I mean, I've seen that a bunch. Man, this church used to be, you know, we used to have 200 people here every Sunday. What happened? They died. <laughs> they died. You're right. Yeah. But why isn't there still 200 people? Because there was a generation that wasn't producing fruit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, but yeah, sometimes we try to write out a legacy that can't sustain itself. And then we, we're, we're unwilling to see the reality of the present state, you know. And so um, sometimes, you know, I see this a lot too. I'll see people that will talk about what their church is doing. Okay, oh, our church is involved with this mission and our church does this outreach. And, oh man, you should have seen, uh, you know, we came together Saturday and we had a fall fun day here at Liberty. But like the person that's saying all this is involved 0% in any of it. What did they do? So, you know, we're taking credit because our church is involved with stuff, but you're not involved with stuff. You're not doing anything if that's the case. You know what I mean? Say, so you're not going to stand before the Lord one day and say, let me tell you, here's the list of things my church did. And Jesus is going to say, where were you at? You know, why didn't you participate? What did you do? 
Okay, and so sometimes I think we think, well, as long as my preacher's doing it, as long as some people in the church are doing it, count me in, right? The participation trophy. I'm on that team, so I get the reward too. You know, it doesn't work that way. If you're not a part of it, you've not done anything. Okay, so anyway, I've seen that with calling nights. You know, I've been a part of congregations where we've had a calling night and all two people would show up, but everyone's real excited because our church has a calling night. You know, well, we're making a difference because we got a calling night. Never seen you be a part of it, right? So, you know, I, trying to take credit for things where there's no work actually being done. All right, let's move on. The prepared, in Matthew 25:10, we see that they get to enter. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. So the bridegroom arrives while the foolish are away trying to purchase or prepare because they, they weren't able to borrow it from the, from the faithful who were prepared. Okay, so you saw that connection. So just because there are prepared faithful Christians around you doesn't mean that you are one of them, right? You don't, you don't get to claim their oil, okay? And so, but here the bridegroom shows up while the foolish are away. Now those who were ready enter the feast with the bridegroom and one of the lessons we need to understand about that is that the Lord is not going to wait for you before he decides to show up what time do we have to get ready that's it guys you know a couple years ago I probably shared this story before but a couple years ago uh, I think it was about three years ago somewhere over here in Indiana there's a fellow at a nursing home and uh, and he you know there there was a preacher I know that was having Bible study with him and he was uh, he was in dialysis. He had kidney failure, um, so he was going to dialysis like twice a week. And anyway, he was going over to the nursing home and having Bible study with him. You know, a couple I think like one day a week they were meeting and having Bible study. Well, it gets to the point where the guy decides he needs to become a Christian. He's ready to be immersed, and uh, and so the preacher shows up with another guy to help him because this guy's got he's got some health problems and he was going to have to be lowered in and it was going to be a whole ordeal so he goes he calls someone else says will you come help me and the two preachers go over there and it was a, it was a baptist lady that was running the 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 institute or whatever she really didn't see why the baptism was such a big deal um, of course they got someone else on the phone that kind of told her you need to let them do this um, you know they're not really allowed to stop you and so anyway, she says, tell you what, let's just do this. He's got dialysis this morning. You know, this, this couple, you know, there's been some time here where they're kind of fighting over whether they're going to do this or not. So she finally breaks, you know, she's finally told that they're going to have to do this baptism. And so she tells them, well, here's what we'll do. We'll go ahead and go through with dialysis. When he gets back, you guys will help you get this done. So, you know, preachers leave. He goes to dialysis. He dies. He never makes it back. Um, no one expected that. I mean, nobody expected that. Um, everyone was planning he'll be back in a couple hours he goes to dialysis twice a week there's no reason why why he wouldn't be you know it just he never was immersed what do we do with that be very hard to live with thing is he's had his whole life to make that decision now I'm not I'm not trying to talk bad about the guy I mean you know I just he's had his whole you know just because you're ready now doesn't mean you're going to have the time to do it. You know, so the time we have is all we have. Right? I mean, we cannot assume that we've got tomorrow. We can't assume that we've got next week. We can't just assume I'll get around to it when my schedule makes, makes it. You know, that we can't do that. So the Lord didn't wait for the foolish to go get ready. 
He expected them to be ready when he showed up. And so we need to understand he is not going to work his schedule around your priorities, your plans, the things that you're wanting to do. Um, some people think foolishly we've got all the time in the world and so we put off spiritual decisions and spiritual priorities. And uh, like I said, there is a time to prepare. The foolish wasted it. And so now they're going to miss out on the very event that they were waiting for because they weren't ready for it. And so that's hard. Um, you know, that's not the only story that goes that way. You know, there's been numerous people that I've talked to where, you know, so-and-so is in the hospital and, you know, I, I, as, soon as, as soon as the surgery's over, as soon as things get better, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back into church. I'm, I'm going to get immersed and... They, 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 they end up not getting those opportunities because they kept putting them off, kept putting them off, kept putting them off. And so, um, and now, you know, it doesn't have to be the opportunity for you to become a Christian, but I think we do the, we certainly do the same thing with, well, I, I should probably walk across the street and talk to my neighbor or there's a person I work with, I've uh, been working with them for years. They don't even know I'm a Christian. We've never had those conversations or we've never had the real conversations where we can actually open up a Bible and start talking about it. And so, you know, what are we waiting for? We, we don't know how much time we have, but right now, I know we have right now. Now, we may not be able to finish our study tonight. Lord could come back. You know, we may not have tomorrow. Lord could come back. You know, and we should be praying for the Lord to come back. We should be excited for the Lord to come back. But it's hard to be excited for the Lord to come back if we're not, if we're not living a life where we're prepared and making the most of the opportunities that we have. I, I had a preacher friend of mine, you know, we were talking one day, and he was, t you know, he, there in Revelation, come Lord quickly, you know, come Lord Jesus. And he's like, I don't, he's like, I, I feel like that's selfish of us to pray that prayer when there's so many lost people out there. And, and uh, you know, to, that uh, he's like, I feel like I just want the Lord to wait and want the Lord to wait. And, you know, and I, I understand where he's coming from. I get that. But that's, that's not the way we can live. We, like, we have to live where I'm prepared and I'm doing all that I can do, making the most of the time that we have. Again, living like Jesus could be back at any moment. In the early church, they believed that. They did live that way. And this parable is encouraging us to do the same thing. Um, let's talk about these three mistakes. Three mistakes the foolish made. First two are easy to identify. The first mistake they made was that they were not prepared. Not that they weren't a Christian. Not that they didn't become a Christian. We can't say that their first mistake was that they didn't get baptized. The first, you know, the mistake was that they weren't prepared for the long haul. You see how this kind of resembles the parable of the sower? Uh, you know, we, we've already talked about this. You know, there's, there's, there's three plants. Only one plant produces fruit and it makes it. You know, time and time again, you know, we're really seeing this importance of the Christian doing more than just becoming a Christian. Like there's, there's more that needs to happen in our life than that. And this is not a waiting room. We need to be, we need to be planning right now to finish this strong. Not just finish, but finish it strong. Let's, let's do all we can for the Lord. So the first mistake they made is that they weren't prepared. The second mistake that they made was that they thought they could borrow it from others. I'm not going to get involved with that, but at least someone in the church is. I had a lady once, uh, she, they, they invited me, a couple invited me to their house and <clears throat> gave me a cup of coffee, sitting just kind of chit-chatted for about five or ten minutes. And then the woman said, Ethan, come over here for a minute. She's standing by a window, and she says, I want you to come over here. 
And so I come over here to the window, and I thought she was going to show me like a deer or, I don't know, a bird. I don't know. She says, you look out there. And I said, okay. She says, you see that trailer over there across the road? I'm like, yeah. Why isn't the church helping them? And I said, well, what do you, I, I, don't, I don't know them. I don't know anything about them. I, what, what do you mean? She's like, you know, she's, she's got a couple kids from a couple different husbands. She's living with a guy now that's not her husband. And, you know, she's, you know, those kids are a mess. And, you know, they're young. And she doesn't know what, you know, they, they don't have any money. And she's like, why isn't the church helping them? And I thought real hard about it. And I said, uh, I said, I said well, let's sit back down. I said, why aren't you helping them? And she says, well, what do you mean? I'm like, are you part of the church? Well, yeah. I'm like, so you want the church to help them, but you don't want to be a part of that. I said, I, I don't even know who they are. You've never mentioned them to me before. I said, so you want this to be something where we do it without any individual actually getting involved in this? I said, the, the idea is that the church is supposed to get involved with people. You need to walk across the street and talk to them. Now, if there's something we can do to help in that, then you know, that's a different conversation. But to just point at all the people in the world that need help and say, why isn't the church collectively doing something? She's the one that's close to that, right? And, and I want you to think about that because sometimes we get that way with, with people in our lives. It's like, well, you know, think about where you work. Think about where you live. Think about your family. You know, you could sit back and say, well, I wonder why no one wants to tell them about Jesus. You probably have, as a Christian, the best relationship with those people than any other Christian you know. So why would it make sense to say, Chris, I need you to come talk to my neighbor who you've never met. Like, why couldn't I do that? Wouldn't I be the right person for that job? You know, if I already have a relationship with them, if I've been that salt, that light, that city on the hill, if I've already set the, set the Christian example, if they see my car leave my driveway every Sunday and every, every midweek service and they've seen me being, I mean, doesn't that already kind of give me a leg up? They know my Christian example, I, I'm already next door to them. Like it would make a whole lot more sense for me to go over and have that conversation than to send someone, one of you all that have never seen this person before in their life, right? And so don't borrow from others, right? You get involved. You get prepared. You get busy. Find a way to serve the Lord in your life. Third mistake is the one that I think sometimes we miss out on in this. And that's that they waited at all. Because what good did it do them? I mean, let's flesh this out again. Who are the foolish? They're in the church. They've obeyed the gospel. They've been baptized into Jesus Christ. They're obviously believers. They're in fellowship with the wise. They spend a great deal of time waiting on the Lord, but they aren't there when He shows up. And so my question is, what good was it to wait at all? Now you think about that. For that Christian, okay, now we've got to get serious about this. Are you going to finish what you start? Right, I mean, you became a Christian. We've just played games. Right? Are you going to actually take this serious? Are you going to show up? I mean, I ask people that. You want to be baptized? You're going to be here Sunday. Well, I, no, no, no. Either we're in or we're out. You know, we're not going to do this. Are you committed? Are you going to, are you going to live the Christian life? Are you ready to follow Jesus? You know, I, I mean, are you going to get involved? Are you going to be reading your Bible? Are you going to be praying? Are you going to, you going to be, find ways to grow? Find ways to get involved? That's what, that's what counting the cost looks like. And so as a Christian, are you going to finish this? 
Now, are you planning to, to grow and get involved? And, and if not, what is the point if you give up, if you bail out, if you compromise? See, <clears throat> if I don't finish, I waste every sermon I've ever heard, every Bible study I've ever sat through, every car ride to the assembly, right? Every hour that I've spent with the saints, every dollar I've put in the offering plate. What good is it if I don't finish? It's all a waste. And so if I'm not going to finish, wouldn't it make more sense to not even try? Wouldn't it make sense to not wait for the Lord at all if I'm not going to still be there when He shows up? Turn to Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> Verse 3 and 4. When you're there, say, got it. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Or are you now being perfected by the flesh? Same scenario, right? Christians, they started this right. If they keep going the way they're going, are they going to be waiting with the Lord when He shows up? No, they're, they're finishing this the wrong way. And so look at what he says in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? See, what happens here is we're talking about a time where these, Galatian, these, these Christians in, in the Galatia area, they became Christians. They repented. They, they were obedient to, to the terms of pardon. They listened to Paul's preaching. And to do that, there was real change that had to happen in their life. There was sacrifice that happened in their life. There, there was uh, things with, I mean, if these are Jewish Christians now, you, know, you realize the kind of impact that has on your social structure, uh, on, on your family life. I mean, they gave up real, real tangible things in order to become a Christian. And now Paul's saying, the way you're going, all that was for nothing. Unless it's not. Look what he says in chapter 4. Verse 11. Paul says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. See, if we don't finish, not only do we waste every Bible study we've sat through, every sermon that was preached to us, not only do we waste every hour in the assembly, we waste every dollar we put in the plate, every, every mile put in the car to get down here and back, but we waste the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We, that is in vain for our lives if we don't finish what we start. Matthew 25, 10 through 12, while we were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. The door was shut. Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. See, the door was shut when the foolish arrived, oil in hand, but the door was already locked. It was too late. They cry out, Lord, Lord, but he responds in the same way he does in Matthew chapter 7. Right? I don't even know you. And so the idea is that when the Lord shuts the door, and the Lord will shut the door, that it's too late to get ready. Right? There's going to be a day when it's too late to repent. There's going to be a day when it's too late to be serious about our Christian life. There's going to be a day where it's too late to change our priorities and start seeking the Lord first. 
Again, just like the days of Noah in Genesis 7, 16, those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded, and the Lord closed it behind him. Only one way into the ark. That way is to do it as God had commanded them. And once the door was shut and the rain started to fall, I'm sure, how many people do you think were out there having a change of heart? No, I'm getting a little wet. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll, I'll start living right now. Revelation 3, 7 says, The angel of the church of Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says what? Who opens the door? Who shuts the door? And once it's shut, no one else can open it. Right? There's a connection here to some Old Testament ideas about the, the key of David. It's really cool. It's worth looking into. It has to do with the one that, uh, that, that you know, held a key over his shoulder. You know, and there's a connection there with, with, with the birth of Christ, and he's, he's going to have the government on his shoulder. You know, it's, it's the one that allows access to the king. It allows access to the storehouse, right? allows access to the king's goods. And so he would open the door and he would lock the door. If he opened the door, you could have uh, visitation with the king. If he kept the door shut, nothing you could do. You weren't going to get in to see the king, right? Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He's the one that opens the door. And if he doesn't open it, you don't get through another way. Well, how do we get to the Father through Christ? Through his plan of salvation. Is there any other way? I mean, you know, when, when we hear people say, well, just ask Jesus into your heart. Well, God never said that. The Lord never said that. Man said that. Is that going to get you in? No? Come to the altar. Pray. The Lord didn't say that. That won't get you in. You see, I mean, you can't bypass him. He's, he's got the key. And so that's, that's a significant thing. But once the door's shut, it's shut, guys. And so we need to be ready. Matthew 25, 13. Be on the alert then. For you do not know the day nor the hour. And so Jesus sums up this parable by exhorting his followers to be ready and to be spiritually alert. Okay, and that's, that's it. You know, it's, it's be on the alert. Be paying attention, right? Be diligent with your Christian life. No one else can stand ready for you. You have to personally be ready uh, in your Christian life. You have to stand ready. And so are you going to be found unprepared or are you going to be ready to enter in when the Lord comes? Any questions tonight? Okay, next week. We do meet next week, right? I know there's a day coming up here where there's a week off, but it's not soon. It's your November date. November date. Okay, next week we're going to talk about the parable. We're going to try to finish out chapter 25. We're going to get into the parable of the talents and we're going to get into that look at judgment, um, which is not... It's kind of a parable. It's not really a parable, but it fits in. So we're going to hit that one too.